0: friends and family, those of you in Theater 14, hello, glad that you're here with us today. If you're a guest, uh, like Pastor Dan was saying earlier, if you would just take a moment, fill out the connection card, we'd love that. And we've got a gift for you, a Starbucks gift card we want to give you, and then a donation we make to a ministry that we support. So if you check that out in your worship program, that would be Awesome. And then today what we're going to do is we're continuing our series called Red Letters. Uh, We've been doing this series really based on Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. It talks about making disciples. One of the first things it's told to do is baptize people. And we're doing baptism next week. For those of you who'd like to be baptized, you can check that on your card. You can go to our website if you're online watching going to go on our website and just uh, go to the baptism tab and sign up for that, or you can use your connection card for that as well. And then it goes on and it says, really what we've been focused on is the next part, teaching them to obey. So not just to know, but to obey everything that Jesus commanded. And so as followers of Jesus Christ, we're supposed to obey his commands, which oftentimes in English translations of the Bible appear in red letters, and so that's the the title of this series. But we're not only supposed to obey them, we're supposed to teach other people to obey them. And so we started this series talking about how can we possibly do that if we don't even know them? There are over 300 commands in the gospel and so obviously I'm not covering all of them this summer, but we're going to be doing the series for the, the next several weeks until Labor Day weekend, and so today we're going to be doing the most unlikely command of all the commands that we're going to look at. If you have your Bibles, you want to get a head start, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to start reading in verse 43 in our Red Letter series. Matthew, first book in the New Testament, and chapter 5, verse 43 is where we're going to be, and as you're turning there, finding that on new version, your iPad, your Bible, your scroll, whatever it is you decided to bring today. Um, I just want to let you know, too, just another way of announcement, a word that's going on uh, here at our church. You've probably heard, if you've been around for a little while, that our year-end for financial year ends in June, and we finished the year in the black, and that was awesome. We're still in the summer months, and I just want to encourage you to continue to be faithful in your giving. I know the summer months are coming, winding down here. Some of you, the summer's been over with for a while because you're in year-round school, and so it's like, my summer got over on June. You know, what are you talking about? And some of you uh, are more of a traditional-type schedule and calendar, and you're, I've got several weeks left, and you're going to slide away for different things, get a little bit of vacation in here at the end of the summer. And I just want to challenge you to continue to be faithful in your giving. We want to start the fiscal year um, doing well too so that later we're not like trying to you know, pedal our way out of a bad situation. So if you can continue to be faithful in your giving, I just want to encourage that. You should have received an email. Those of you are a regular part of our church, um, if you didn't get the email, they don't all ask for money and you'd like to receive it, you can sign up on your connection card. Um, but Pastor John sent an email out on Saturday and it just gave the four different ways that you can give here at Southbridge. Obviously we have our boxes that we put out and you can do your tithes and offerings today there and then online um, giving. And There's a couple other options that you can see in that email and if you didn't get that email and you want it you can just uh, fill it out in your connection card and we'll get that to you but i just want to encourage you we got a very generous church but i just want to encourage you throughout the summer and this is even if you're visiting from another church today this is true of all churches in the summer months the giving tends to dip down so just encouraging you uh, to continue to stay faithful not even when you're physically not able to attend a worship service and so we're going to jump into red letters matthew chapter 5 verse 43 i'm going to pray for us and then we'll jump into the message so let me pray father thank you um, that we can gather in your name. Thank you that uh, you can encourage us and do a work just by seeing each other and knowing that uh, we gather with a common purpose and a common mission and a common belief in your son Jesus Christ. And I pray for those who are here today that don't have that belief in your son Jesus. I pray today would be the day of faith. I pray you transform the eternity as a result of words that are said. I pray that you'd anoint my words to have a supernatural conversation with all the hearts that will hear these words. I pray that you'd do something that I couldn't guess, I couldn't imagine, I couldn't even pray for at this moment. I pray that you'd operate on our hearts in a supernatural way. You'd remove things that shouldn't be there. I pray you'd stitch things together where they're broken and hurt. God, I pray that you'd do a miracle this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, today in uh, Matthew chapter 5, as we get into this most unlikely command, we're going to be commanded to do the most unlikely thing to the most unlikely people, which is interesting because we live in a world where unlikely stuff happens all the time. And I was reminded of that this week when I pulled into the office, Monday morning, just getting the week started, I'm listening to a news program, and they're telling me these different news stories, the things that had happened the the prior week. And uh, each one I heard, I thought to myself, who would have if you were living in that situation, no one would have thought that would have happened, some of the most unlikely stuff. I just want to share with you real quickly those three stories. The first one was about a teenage couple that were going on a date, a 16-year-old named Dylan, a 17-year-old gal named Lexi. They were on a walk, they were holding hands in California, they're going to get burgers, And they got struck by lightning, which in and of itself is a highly unlikely thing. Dylan, when he retold the story, said that it felt like he got hit on the back of the head with a sheet of metal. He was on the ground, curled up in a ball, and he, about three feet away was his girlfriend. They were just screaming at each other at what had happened in that situation, and a car came over to see if they were okay. Apparently they were okay, because what happened next was even more unlikely. They went and got Burgers. After getting struck by lightning, Dylan did have the presence of mind to text his mom, kind of a casual text message that says, "Uh, Lexi and I got struck by lightning. (laughs) Mom wrote back, I hope that's an expression. Like, what are you talking about? You got struck by lightning. Then they went and ate the burgers. When they got home, the mom and dad said that you have to go to the, you know, they went to an urgent care. You have to go to the doctor and see if you're okay, what happened with all this. They go to the doctor. The doctor said that what probably saved them from suffering really bad injuries was the fact that they were holding hands with each other. And you'll have to ask Pastor Jad about the science of all this. But apparently, you know, it dissipated the energy. And the theory was that the lightning bolt had gone into Dylan's head, the 16-year-old boy, and out the left foot of the young girl, 17-year-old girl. And then, therefore, they were just sore and achy for a couple days. Otherwise, they were okay. Now, if I were a teenage guy living in California and I heard this story, I'd be walking up to girls holding their hands. I'm just trying to protect you, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Unlikely story unlikely scenario. Unlikely you're going to start by lightning. Unlikely you're going to be totally fine. Unlikely you're going to go eat burgers afterwards. Lots of unlikely stuff. The next story I heard was about a guy that was shoplifting at Walmart. He went into Walmart in Illinois. He was stealing a bunch of electronic stuff, put it in his car, goes out to his car. When he gets to his car, his car's not there because it's been repossessed. <laughs> I thought to myself, we do Dave Ramsey. <laughs> like He needs some help. The guy, guy got confronted by the Walmart employees, which I thought was pretty, pretty unlikely, too. Like, they cared. that you come out there in the parking lot and confront you. They confronted the guy. He leaves the electronic items, takes off on foot. Later in the day, gets approached by police officers asking why he was just walking down the street. He says his car got repossessed. Oh, you must be the guy. And he got arrested. All unlikely scenario. What had happened? The third story was probably the most unlikely. Third story would happen. Maybe you heard this one. I actually saw this one on television as well. There was a guy who was out with his girlfriend 21 year old guy, 19 year old girl. They're dating each other, and her ex boyfriend shows up and starts talking trash about her. To defend her honor, the guy punches the ex boyfriend in the face. Ends up getting charges pressed against him, and so it's a minor assault situation. He's probably going to get probation, might get a little jail time. He's in the courtroom, and the judge comes out and gives one of the most unlikely sentences you've ever heard. He can either do 15 days in jail. Or he can go on probation, but probation includes every day, writing out 25 times one Bible verse, and within 30 days, he had to agree to marry the girl that he was with. And so the way that it happened in the court court transcripts is the judge actually came out and asked the guy, so was she worth it? Punching this guy, and he said, yeah. Are you two living together? Yeah. Well, I'm going to give you this scenario. You can either go to jail for 15 days, or you can do the probation with the Bible verses and marrying her. And the guy responded back. Can I call my work and tell him I won't be there for 15 days? If <laughs> I'm the girl, I'm like, wait a minute, you know, what's going on? But the judge said, no, it doesn't work that way. And so the guy said, I need to think about it. Eighteen days later, he married this, this gal, which, if I'm the gal, I'm thinking, that's not the most romantic. So you, the judge made you, and you said no the first time. So, but <laughs> unlikely scenario, unlikely judgment, lots of unlikely stuff happens. In fact, if you think about your last week, I bet you there were unlikely things that took place in your own life. If not, they'll probably happen this next week, don't worry. And today what we're going to look at in this passage of Scripture is the most unlikely command of anything we're looking at in the Red Letter series. It's an unlikely response, love. To the most unlikely people, our enemies. We're supposed to love our enemies. Who would ever come up with something like that? It's in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 43. And what we're looking at here is actually a sermon that Jesus preaches. We've been talking about this the last couple of weeks. A sermon on the mount. Probably the most popular sermon that was ever preached. It started in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1, where Jesus starts off talking about how, how to have happiness. How to have satisfaction in your life. And he does that the first several verses. And he's talking about how to live the kingdom life. How, what it is to be a follower of his. What it looks like to live a life where you acknowledge you've got a different king. He talks about being the salt and light of the world, something we talk about often at this church. We want to be a city on a hill. We want to see the city redeemed, and we want to be the salt and the light that brings the gospel to people, and he talks about how to do it. He started the context for this, this section of the message in verse 20, saying, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the religious leaders of the day, the hypocritical, self-righteous Pharisees, you have no shot at getting into heaven. And then he goes on to give them six statements that all have the same formula, You've heard it said, but I say to you. Not it is written, but you've heard that it was said, false teaching. They took a true thing and they dumbed it down so it wasn't God's true intention. You've heard your religious teachers say this, but let me tell you God's intention behind it. In fact, let me read you the first five of them because we're looking at the sixth one today. It's the culmination, it's the climax, and apart from the Holy Spirit, will be the most impossible of all of them. He says in verse 21, the first one, You've heard that it was said to people long ago, do not murder And anyone who murders is subject to judgment. Jesus says, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Then he talks about relationships for a little bit. In verse 21, he gives the next one. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. A couple words about that. Verse 31. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. Verse 33, again, you've heard that it was said, so you get this theme, it's like each one of his points in this message, again, you've heard it said, the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made, and then they add this little clause, to the Lord, keep the oaths you made to the Lord, the other ones you can lie about. Jesus says, but I tell you, do not swear at all, let your life be such a life of integrity, you don't need to do that. a few verses later, he says, verse 38, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, justice, equality, and the punishment for the crime. But I tell you, as people of the light, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other to him also. A few verses, and then the climax, which is our passage today. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Verse 44, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your father in heaven. Now, what he's saying here, what Jesus is saying, no one becomes a son. You don't work your way to becoming a son. Either you're born a son or you're adopted into the family. Same is true with daughters. He's saying here, demonstrate, look the same, show the kind of love that your father has shown. And while we were yet sinners, we were enemies. Christ died for us. He says, look like your father. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. So he gives love that people accept even when they won't accept Christ. This is common grace that's being talked about here. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So it's not just the righteous farmers that get rain and unrighteous farmers have drought. He gives, it's his grace that he's giving to all people, even those who curse his name. Verse 46. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? Everyone does that. Everyone loves that way. But there's a reward for those who love the supernatural love. Verse 47. And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Everyone does that kind of love, but what I'm commanding you to is a supernatural love—a love for enemies. The most unlikely response. Because think about what is your most likely response to your enemy—someone who wants to hurt you, someone who wants to do you harm, someone has ill intent towards you—and say they gossip about you. Maybe it's somebody you met. Maybe you met them in a Bible study. Uh, Maybe somebody who slanders you. Maybe it's somebody who's done something physically. Maybe somebody wants to do something to you, and you know it. Our natural response as humans is we seek vengeance. We want to, they do something to us, we're going to do something to them. The problem is we're not good at it. We think we're seeking vengeance. Someone says something about us, so we say something about them and plus a little bit. So we're going to outdo it in a little one-upsmanship. We're just going to go a little bit further, so we're not good at that. The Lord says that vengeance is his, that we should give that to the Lord for vengeance. A more spiritual response we oftentimes think is, we'll just ignore the other person. Like a bully on the playground. A bully punches somebody in the face, and then the teacher tells them, just ignore it. Just don't, don't, don't go by them. Just don't pay attention to them. Which sounds like schoolyard counsel. But many of us do that in estranged relationships with an ex-spouse, parent, whoever it is. As long as they just keep their, I don't mess with them, they don't mess with me, everything's fine. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says not just to acknowledge them, not just to retouch them, love them. Who? Enemies. Not your friends, not your neighbors, not... People that are not quite like you, not people that are just outsiders and they need you to reach out, not just the poor, not just the hungry, not just the dumbest. People actually want to harm you. And so what Jesus is commanding here is the least likely thing that we would ever do to the least likely people. And so the command is this, and our main point today is this, that we must do the most unlikely thing, love, to the most unlikely people, your enemies. We must do the most unlikely thing, which is love, it won't come natural, not this kind, to the most unlikely people, Those who want to harm us are enemies. And did you notice the passage actually assumes that we have enemies? And Go back to verse 43, and and you'll see it here. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemy. It's just assumed that you have enemies. Of course you have enemies. Now, some of you, I realize in the audience, may think to yourself, I don't have to do this message, finally. Like this red letter series has been pretty tough. Now I don't have, the, I don't have any enemies. And maybe even spiritualize and think because you're such a good Christian, you don't have any enemies. Or maybe you think because you have such a great relational capacity, you can win everybody over. Everyone will like you. And so you'll think you don't have any enemies. That's a good sign. Let me tell you something. If you don't have enemies, that's a problem. If you don't have enemies, it may be a sign that you lack a backbone. Probably means you don't stand for anything. Oh, I just, I have a way of winning. no. I think John Piper has a, a great quote I read in his book. You can check it out. I don't think we put it in the study this week, but it's uh, Demands of Jesus, and he's talking about different commands of Jesus. He says, having enemies may mean you are in step with Jesus. Now, a disclaimer, not Piper me, so if you want to email me, it might mean you're a jerk that you have a bunch of enemies, but it could also mean it's an evidence that you're walking with Jesus, that you're in step with him. They hate it. They persecute. They killed him. And so what do you think they're going to do if you walk and live the life that he calls you to live? if you don't believe that, let me read you some verses from the Bible. Red letters, John chapter 15, verses 19 through 20. The abide in me passage, he says, If you belong to the world, it would have loved you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. He's bought you at a price. I've chosen you out of the world. The price was his own blood. That's why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. they don't persecute you, you're not standing for him. Matthew chapter 10, verse 25. It's enough for the student to be like the teacher and the servant like the master. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, it's a title for Satan, how much more the members of his household? And then he says he gives a woe in Luke chapter 6, and Verse 26. Whoa, a statement of condemnation. This is a warning. This is a big deal. If everybody likes you, be careful. Woe to you if all men speak well of you. Because that's what they did to the false prophets who would say whatever they needed to say to make people like them. What itching ears want to hear? The kind of false teachers that were told people will gather around themselves in the last days. Woe to you if you're one of those people. Jesus says, you will have enemies in this very sermon in matthew chapter 5 and verses 10 and 11 at the very beginning he says blessed are those who mourn blessed are those who are hunger and thirst after righteousness blessed are the poor in spirit blessed are happiness comes from doing these things which are opposite of what the world oftentimes tells us and then he says blessed are or you could say rejoice are those you should rejoice in persecution because of righteousness for theirs is the king that's a sign that you're in the kingdom in verse 11 blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil Against you because of me not because you're a jerk, but when it's because of me. So you should have enemies. We should all have if you're a genuine follower of Jesus Christ, you should have enemies. With that in mind, I want to ask you this question. Who is your enemy? It's not a rhetorical question. I want you to actually answer. You can answer it in your mind. You don't need to yell, please don't yell out any names. But uh in your mind, what name comes to mind? And so I, I knew I was going to ask this question this week, and so I thought to myself, what will people think of? And, and I, I know some people may automatically think of ISIS, I mean, cutting Christians' heads off. There was like 21 Christians back in February, cut their heads off on TV, and all kinds of terrible stuff taking place with them, Boko Haram doing this stuff in Africa. And, I thought, and some of you may think of that, Planned Parenthood, obviously killing babies, and so Christians speak out against that, and then they speak out against Christians, and, and maybe the LGBT community, and you'd think about how they oftentimes try to make Christians look like they're evil because they just hate everybody because you stand for something and so they, they say that you hate them and it's not true but it's the, the battle that happens or any group that maybe marginalizes Christianity but I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind here I don't think he was thinking of groups of people but names specific people that are your enemies Pers- this is personal this isn't just the- like those people that are against the people that I like And it's not like hey NC State and UNC it's not that It's like maybe your coworker. It could be petty things like it says here in the text. It talks about persecution. That's a big deal. It talks about also greeting one another. And talks about the sun rising. It's the general stuff. It could be somebody that just intentionally ignores you for the sake of hurting your feelings. It could be bigger than that. It could be a boss who's not nice. It could be an ex-spouse. It could be in a strange relationship with a brother, sister, mom, dad. It could be it could be the person who caused the greatest harm in your life. It's someone who's living, though, because what we're being told here to do, you don't have the opportunity to do with dead people. You miss that opportunity. So someone that's, who's the, who is your enemy? Who's the person in your life that's caused you the greatest harm, that's currently living today? And I want you to put that name in your mind for your sake. I'm not going to ask you to turn it in or say, to tell me or anything like that, but for your sake, as we're going through this passage of scripture, I want you to think of that person. And so hopefully you have that person. Who's your enemy? Who's the person that's caused the greatest harm in your life? And Jesus is confronting here a false teaching about them. The false teaching was that we could hate them. In fact, he's got two ways that the false teaching occurs here. First of all, I don't know if you noticed, but it's an error of omission. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, verse 43, if we have that and put that up on on the screen, love your neighbor. And that's actually stated in the Bible, in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Those of you who know that command will know that there's part of it missing here, though. The command is actually love your neighbor as yourself. And so apparently what the religious leaders of this day had done is said, well, let's make this more palatable. Let's make this more applicable. No one loves anyone as much as they love themselves. And so let's just love your neighbor. And by neighbor, they defined people that were just like you. That's what the Jews did. And then by implication, if we're supposed to have this love for our neighbor, then we can imply hate. Well, then of course. And so they taught overtly, hate your enemy. You can hate those who are not like you. Now, we implicitly do this oftentimes as churches. Now, let me tell you how this happens. And hopefully it won't happen here. And if it does, hopefully we correct it. Oftentimes what we do is we'll we'll implicitly teach that if you're really a follower of Jesus, you'll be just like us. And so you'll think all the same things we think. You'll believe all the same. You'll have all the same views on things that we have. And you'll look like us. You'll dress like us. You'll talk like us. You'll even have the same musical preferences as us. You might even use the same exact version of the Bible printed on the exact same date as us. And that ends up leading to a bunch of stupid stuff. We call it like racism um, ethnic, you're afraid of other ethnicity, just anybody that's different than you you, have, you don't have a problem with, guess what, God made the body of Christ to be diverse it's supposed to be diverse, diverse in gifting diverse in talent, different in social statuses, different in race, it should be different in all those different things that is not what this means sometimes implicitly we do that as a church, I hope we don't but I'm sure we have they weren't, impl- they weren't implying this, they were overtly stating this that you could hate your enemies, which they meant by that, people that are different than us. In fact, Jews actually had a belief, that they hated Gentiles. Those was people that weren't Jews, different races. They're very racist. And they had a, a code of conduct that if you saw a Gentile giving birth, you were not to help that woman give birth to that child because by doing so, you'd bring Gentile scum into the world. They had a prayer. We've actually seen that this prayer has been written down. They had a prayer that they would pray, God, at the resurrection, do not remember the Gentiles. In other words, we'd rather they went to hell that's hate. And what Jesus is saying here, he's confronting that, and he's saying not that you should just reach out to them, not that you tolerate them. Don't just forgive your enemy. Not just people that are different than you. Someone who actually wants to harm you. It's not that you want to harm them. It's that they want to harm you. They have ill intent towards you. He says, but love them. So what does it mean to love? And we have lot, there's lots of reasons why this is hard to explain in our culture. We define love as tolerance. We define love as a feeling. We define love as lots of different things. But we have one word that we use, and we use it for everything that we have a fondness for. So I love my wife, and I love my kids, and I love God, and I love my church. And I also love puppies, and I also love you know food and events. And I love the fair, and I love butter, and I love fried stuff. So I must love fried butter, so I really love the fair, right? And then I love fried butter wrapped in bacon even more. And I like cupcakes, and so wrap the cupcakes in bacon, put them on top of the fried butter, and double fry and fry and fry and fry and I love it. And we use the same word that we'd use for our love for God and our love for our spouse and our love... C.S. Lewis has written a book where he he calls it the four loves, and he talks about the four Greek words for love. Some of those words aren't even in the New Testament, okay? So I'm not trying to say that these words are here in the Bible. This isn't some, you know, exegetical work on this passage here. But the idea is that there's different types of love. And so one love that he talks about is eros love. That's sexual love. So you have a sexual attraction towards someone. Jesus isn't telling us here that we're supposed to be sexually attracted to our enemies. Storge love is another love. It's a familial love. It's a love that you have for your family. It's the kind of love that you naturally have for your parents, naturally have for your siblings, naturally have for those that are in your family. Uh, the Phileo love is a brotherly love. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, it, it's, a, it's a warm, fuzzy feeling that you have towards someone. It's a natural affection for your nearest and dearest. Agape love, oftentimes the word that's used in the the New Testament, always defined by context. There's not just one definition just because it's one Greek word. But the context oftentimes dictates that it's a willful love. It's a love that you do by choice. It's a love that you take action with. And so the point being, not that there's four words for love here, is that you can't think of the simplicity. When Jesus commands us to love our enemies, he's not saying to have warm, fuzzy feelings towards your enemy like you do towards your nearest and dearest. He's not saying you need to be attracted to your enemies. He's not saying these things that oftentimes we'll throw in this garbage. I could never do that. And Jesus is well aware that your enemies cause some of the greatest pain in your life. And Jesus has compassion, not just on them, but also on you. But he is commanding us to make a willful choice, not that you feel warm and fuzzy about, but a willful choice to put their interest above your own. A willful choice to take actions. This is an action, verse 44, that is a verb when it says love there. In fact, the cornerstone passage on love, defining biblical love, is 1 Corinthians 13. I'm going to read it to you today. But there's 15 different characteristics that are described about love in that passage. All 15 of them are in verb form. It's kind, it's patient, it you know, doesn't keep record of wrongs, it always endures. All those things, It's all. Ver- they're all actions, and so it takes action for the sake of the other person. Here's something else. The other person doesn't decide whether it's love or not. That's one of the jacked up things about our society is that we act like, well, if they don't feel loved, it must not be love. No, God determines whether or not you're taking action for their best interest or not. They don't define it. God does. And that's not natural. And that's what Jesus is pointing out here. That's why he says, if you love those who love you, everyone does that. If you love someone because they love you, everyone. if you love someone or something, fried butter, whatever, if you love that because it's desirable to you, everyone does that. He's not condemning that. That is not wrong. It's just natural. And what he's calling for here in a love for enemy is supernatural. It's not something we would... It's unlikely that we would ever do this apart from the Holy Spirit. Here's the interesting thing. If you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior then you have the Holy Spirit of God living within you. And there's a fruit of the Spirit that happens in your life. The very first characteristic of the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, is love. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. And so let me ask you this question. Is there anything supernatural about your love? Oftentimes we quote as Christians, John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, they'll know we're Christians by our love. But is there anything that's really Christ-like about our love? Or do we just love naturally? Like what Jesus is talking about here, he says, to these Jews, even the tax collectors love like that. He says, if you love, verse 44, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Answer is none. Are not even the tax collectors doing that? Now, just to be clear, no one likes tax collectors. Okay? No one today likes tax collectors. If you work for the IRS, I'm sorry, no one likes you. It's just the way that it is. God loves you. No one here really likes you. Because no one wants you coming to get their money. So that's just natural. But you've got to understand, tax collectors then, they were the worst of the worst. Imagine this scenario. Imagine that ISIS does come here, cuts people's heads off, um, starts raping women, starts ruling by oppression, and then starts taking your money. 80 to 90% of whatever you earn, they take it to run their corrupt government that leads by oppression and promotes like it's godly. And then some of your friends, American citizens, decide they're going to go work for them, raising money for them by taking yours. That was what tax collectors did. Only it wasn't ISIS, it was Rome. And so they were the scum of the earth. And even they loved people. They loved their moms, and their moms loved them. And they loved their spouses, and their spouses loved them. That's natural. Even they, so this is an offensive statement that Jesus says to them. Even tax collectors love the way that you love. There's no reward for that. What I'm calling you to do is to love the way that I love. And this is what I did when I died for you. Romans 5.8. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And a couple verses after that, Jesus says this. For if when we were, it's Romans 5.8 says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.10 says this. For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. That's what it meant when Jesus died on the cross. He was dying for his enemies, you and me. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through this life? And so he changes us, he transforms us in this life to live out his kind of love. And so I just ask you, what is it about your love that's more than just natural? Or do you just love people who love you? Do you just love things that are desirable to you? Maybe you love them and maybe they don't love you, but you can get something from them. Or maybe they, there's something just attractive about them. And so you're, you, show, you demonstrate love, but it's not, it's not what we're talking about. A selfless love where you put the other person's best interest ahead of your best interest, and you take action to demonstrate it. And Jesus took the action by going to the cross. That's the love that he's calling us to. And he tells us here, in this passage, some of the actions that we're to take. The first one is prayer. And so who's your enemy? Get that name or face, hopefully. Do you pray for your enemy? She just said, I'll read you the first couple of verses again. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's not true. But I tell you, love your enemies. And here's one of the ways you can do it. You want an action for it? Love, right there is a verb. Here's an action. Pray for those who persecute you. Pray for even the, the worst of the enemies, the ones who persecute you. Not just the ones who ignore you, but even pray for the ones who persecute you. And so I'll just ask you this simple question. Do you pray for your enemies? You pray for their forgiveness you pray that they, for, the, for them, those that aren't professing believers in Jesus? Do you pray for their salvation? Because you can't say you love somebody if you don't care about their eternal destiny. In fact, I would challenge you that you can't say that you love someone if you don't care enough about their eternal destiny that you're willing to be a part of them coming to Christ. And it's God's plan on whether he uses you or not, but at least you're willing to be a part of them coming to Christ. So do you pray for them? I'll tell you that um, as I think about learning this lesson, because oftentimes it's the kind of thing that's learned better, than um, from like a lecture or a sermon or whatever, then it's seeing people do it. Uh, probably the person in my life who's taught me the most about loving my enemies is a woman named Becky McDonald. She leads a ministry. She's the president, founder of a ministry that we partner with, Women at Risk International, that rescues people out of human trafficking. So if you've guessed, you fill out that connection card, we make a donation to Women at Risk International. Um, I'll tell you when I first heard about human trafficking, uh, what my thoughts were. When I first realized, one, I didn't even think slavery was something that happened today. Like I thought that was a bad part of American history, and it happened. It's bad, bad news that it happened, but it's not. It's part. It's gone. It's done. And then I learned there's more slaves in the world today than there's ever been that people are actually objectifying people and buying and selling them like commodities for uh, sometimes labor, but oftentimes sexual stuff. And I thought prostitution, it was bad, but people who did it uh, were maybe in a difficult situation, but they willfully did it and found out that many are not, um, not doing that on their own free will. When I heard about this, I was angry. And my thought was, I know guys that were Navy SEALs, and I know guys that were Marines, and we're we'll going to go kill these traffickers and rescue the, for Jesus and rescue them. Women out. I'm. I'm. That's legitimately what I thought. And I think I told Becky something like, "Why don't we just go and kill these guys, and then take the women? We'll be rescued out of the situation." And uh, she began to teach me, Scott. The thing you need to know about the traffickers and the pimps and the brothel owners is that they're lost too. And so when you can look them in the eye and you see the child that was there that was crying out for help that no one answered, and somehow they became hardened, and now they're doing these things, you realize how lost they are. I'm so still in the process of learning that, to be real candid with you. But well, she then tells me stories, and so she told me a story. Recently, about um, there were a bunch of brothel owners, pimps, different traffickers that were uh, where they were at in China, and some of the women had come to them who had been rescued out of that, had trusted Christ as their Savior, and requested, Can your ministry do something to try and reach out to these guys, our abusers, because. They need to know that they can have hope too. They need to know they can be set free like we've been set free, that they can be forgiven the way that we've been forgiven. And so the women were the ones that initiated this, and what the ministry decided to do is they were going to put on a banquet for the traffickers and the pimps and the brothel owners, and they did. Eight of them came to Christ at this banquet. That was in May of 2014, uh, last year. And now one of the guys has actually started a safe house for women in India, rescuing them out of human trafficking. He knows how the system works. And God's using that redeeming those situations but the story she told me this past week um we talk about praying for our enemies she's telling me about a, a nine-year-old girl that she met and i've got a nine-year-old girl and some picture in her face this little face this little girl sweet innocent girl terrible stuff's happened in her life and she met her in guatemala and she's talking to this little girl and becky's a mom so she asks mom type questions she says if you could wave a wand you know thinking disney type if you could wave a wand and have any wish granted what wish would it be and the little girl didn't you know think about nine-year-old girls that you know didn't ask for a toy, didn't ask for a friend, didn't even ask for, in her situation, safety. She said, if I can make any wish, I would wish that my dad would know the forgiveness I know for the things that he's done to me. Because then he'd know the freedom that I know. Nine-year-old little girl said this. That's a prayer. And that's a great example of praying for your enemies, those who do the most harm to you, But it's not the best example. The best example is what Jesus Christ did when he was dying on the cross for our sins. And he's getting nailed to the cross and he's hanging on the cross and dying and he cries out. Luke chapter 23 verse 34. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know who I am. They don't realize what I've done. They don't realize that Jesus is the one who came and lived the sinless life. He's the only one who had a righteousness to surpass that of the Pharisees so that he could then die for your sins and my sins. They don't realize that it's through my death that they can receive righteousness, that I become sin, that they receive righteousness. They don't realize that I'm dying for them, my enemy, you, his enemies. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know who I am. They don't know what this means. They don't understand. Father, forgive them. They should know. I learned something about that verse this week. I didn't know that until this week that this Father forgive them is actually in the imperative tense what that means imperative is it's repeated action it happens over and over and over again and so the truth about Luke chapter 23 verse 34 we get in this one situation where Jesus is dying on the cross he probably prayed it repeatedly through his torture he probably prayed it as they were putting nails in his hands Father forgive them they don't know what they're doing as they're putting the thorn crowns on his head Father forgive them they don't know they're stripping him naked and they're mocking him Father forgive them they don't know, they don't know what they're doing He's hanging on the cross dying and they come and they make fun of him. Father, forgive them. I don't know. John Stott says this, talking about that prayer. He says the cruel torture of the crucifixion could not silence our Lord's prayer for his enemies. What pain, pride, prejudice, or sloth could justify the silencing of ours? You pray for your enemies? it's a tangible step. That's an action step towards loving your enemies. And it wasn't just Jesus who did it. It wasn't just a nine-year-old in Guatemala. If you read through the rest of the New Testament, read the book of Acts. His followers do this. Stephen, the first martyr, who's being stoned to death. There's a guy named Saul who's watching it happen, by the way. And as he's dying, he falls to his knees. He says, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. He doesn't quote Jesus. It's the same thing. Lord, forgive them. I don't know. And pray for your enemies. It's the first action step. Here's another action step. to do tangible things. And it's kind of generally stated in this passage. I'll show you where I get it from. In uh, Matthew chapter 5, you read uh, verse 45, that you may be sons of the Father in heaven. And then he talks about some general things that God does. So people can reject the cross. They don't realize the love that's being demonstrated for them on the cross. But everyone receives common grace. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. It's not just a sunny day for those who love Jesus. Walk around, it's a sunny day, birds are flying around your head, and everybody else has dark clouds floating around. Everybody, if it's a sunny day, everybody gets a sunny day. And he doesn't just send on the righteous, and then some people, the unrighteous, don't get the rain. They, they live in a drought. No, the rain comes for all of them. It's his common grace. He demonstrates tangible acts of love to everyone. And he goes on, he gives that, if you love those who love you, what reward do you get? So there's a reward for loving like this, supernatural love. If you only greet, and so for some people, it might be just a tangible step of reaching out. Greet your enemy. If you only greet those who are brothers, what are you doing more than others? Don't mean the pagans do that. You do more than that. You do tangible steps. And so what's a tangible step for you? Praying, we start with that, but then what? Then what actions? I'm going to tell you where this thing ends up. It ends up with you doing some actions towards your enemy. So what action will it be for you? It'll be different for each of us. One action it could be, look at the context of this sermon, because context is always important. You jump back in the sermon a little bit. When Jesus was talking about hating a brother, which is a natural response for us to do towards our enemies, he says to reconcile the relationships. Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, he says this, Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. Now understand, some of these people had traveled from Galilee to Jerusalem. This wasn't like a convenient, like, I better go out in the lobby and text message them. No, this is like, this is a big deal. This is the, a big deal. And Jesus is saying, reconciling these relationships we have with each other, these horizontal relationships are important. So don't pretend, don't play like the vertical relationships good when you've got these other things to deal with too you know, what, South we talk about all the time. We connect people to Jesus for life change. And sometimes you'll hear me. We're talking about the vision of our church. We're talking about life change. A list off things that God does. You know, breaks addictions. And we see that we'll hear that. You get testimony of that coming on Thursday night at CR. He, you know, saves people. We get people saved on a regular basis. going from being in the darkness without hope and without God to being reconciled to God and forgiven of their sins. He reconciles relationships. My prayer for this message today is that one person will be reconciled in a relationship with their enemy maybe it's you maybe you're the one maybe it's somebody from the first service i don't know but it's a big deal that's an action step for some for others it'll be different it'll be based on your context on where god has placed you but i'm gonna tell you it ends up with you taking action steps based on the circumstances in your life god is sovereign none of those things have happened by accident And so he controls where you live, where you move, where you have your being, the people you have relationships with. He strategically placed you there. And if you're a follower of Jesus, to be a salt and light in that situation. And it will end up being an action step. It's like a a story that I read from Chuck Swindoll's book, Improving Your Service. an older book, and you can still find it on Amazon. And he tells a story about when he was at Trinity Evangelical Seminary, which is in um, Chicago area. He was interviewing a young man about having a, a job there at the seminary. And the, the guy was telling him a story about how the year before, he had tried to get a job at a bunch of different churches. And he wanted to do ministry. He said, God, I'll do anything you want me to do. It. I'll do it anywhere you want me to do it. And he applies to all these different churches. and He doesn't get any of the jobs. And so then he's frustrated because he's like, God, I don't want you to do this. And it's not happening. He realizes he's just got to make money. And so he goes and gets a summer job working for the Chicago Transit Authority, driving a bus. Does the training, learn how to drive the bus, gets the licenses, all that stuff. And then he gets assigned a a route that's in South Chicago, which apparently is a pretty bad area, pretty dangerous area. And the first week that he's doing the route, some hoodlums got on the bus, gang members, and they didn't pay. And they were swearing at him when they were getting off the bus. guy's name was Aaron. At least Chuck calls him uh, Aaron in the book. And uh so Aaron drives the bus. Every day these guys are getting on their bus and not paying and then giving them a hard time as they're riding. So after several days of going through this, Aaron's driving the bus. He sees a police officer walking down the side of the road. It's not a bus stop, he just pulls over to the police officer says, Hey, these guys keep getting on the bus, they won't pay the fare, and they're giving me a hard time. The police officer said, Either pay the fare or get off the bus. They paid the fare, and the police officer got off the bus. Then Aaron drove around the corner and got jumped, got knocked unconscious. When he woke up, the guys were not on the bus, but he had two swollen eyes. His teeth were knocked out of his face, and he couldn't walk quite the same. He spent that weekend in his apartment crying out to God, recovering, and saying, I wanted to do anything that you wanted me to do. I do all this ministry. I go anywhere you want me to go in the world. And then you give me this. Why do you give me this? And then I, this is like what I get from you for being willing to do whatever you want. So he decided to press charges on Monday. Went and found that police officer that he'd called onto the bus. And uh, with the help of some of the witnesses that were on the bus, they were able to wrangle up most of the guys that were part of that. Charged them. So Long story short, they came to a plea agreement where they were going to plead guilty for what had happened. And their day in court, Aaron decided to come. He came with his attorney. And they were just sitting in the part where you, you watch. The guys that were going to plead guilty were brought up into the jury box. And the judge was going to give them their sentence. And something happened to Aaron while he was sitting there. And God took away his bitterness and gave him a compassion for the men that were in the jury box. And as the judge was going to give his sentence, he stood up and he said, Judge, could I just ask you to do one thing? I'm the guy that they beat up. Um, could you just tally together all their sentences and I'll serve them? All of them, Just put them all together and I'll, t- I'll spend all those days in jail. And he looked over at the guys in the jury box and said, because I forgive you guys. And the judge asked for order in the court, told him to sit down. He's not supposed to be talking. He says, no one's ever done this before. And the, and the Aaron said, no, someone has done this before. His name was Jesus Christ. And he sat down. The judge did not allow him to serve those sentences. But he went to visit those guys while they were in jail, led several of them to Christ, and then started a ministry in South Chicago to reach guys like that. God had a plan. And it often doesn't go the way that we want it to go. And it's oftentimes not the way that we would write it out. But it's a plan for your good and for his glory. And he even uses the pain and he uses the difficulty for your good and his glory. That's what he did with Aaron. Aaron had to take some action steps to demonstrate love, though. And so do you. That's what Jesus did for us. See, Jesus didn't just sit up in heaven as we're trying to get there. You know, we try to work our way to heaven. We try to be religious, or at least I'm not as bad as that guy. And he could just laugh at us and be like, what feeble attempts for you to try to get to heaven. Instead, what Jesus did is he came here to earth, and he lived a sinless life. That's the only righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees. And the way that you get that is when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, he gives you his righteousness, not because you're good. is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. That you receive his righteousness because he received your sin. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That happens by faith. And it happens because of Romans chapter 5, verse 8. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That he came and died for his enemies. But his dying for us isn't enough. You have to place your faith in his death for you. Amen. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 talk about that. Later, in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it says that while you were a sinner, while you were his enemy, he died for you. But then it says this, in Romans chapter 10, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's a promise. Saved from your sin, rescued from a Christless eternity in hell. Verse 10 says the same thing. Just says it again. For it's with your heart that you believe. So if you believe in your heart that Jesus died for your sins you're halfway there and with your mouth and you're justified and it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved so you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth and some of you that's your response today see the greatest demonstration of the gospel is if a christian would live this out loving their enemies who could say you're a hypocrite if you do that it's the action you're loving your enemies but first you got to respond to the gospel Some of you haven't responded to the gospel, and your response is to trust Christ as your Savior. There's three responses to this message today. And the first one is to place your faith in Jesus Christ. So if you're watching online, if you're in Theater 14, if you're right here in this room with me, some of you need to place your faith in Jesus Christ. Why not today? Why not place your faith in Jesus right now? I'm going to invite you to do that. I'm going to give you an opportunity. I'm going to pray a prayer. I'm just going to ask us all to bow our heads and close our eyes right now. I'm going to pray a prayer based on Romans chapter 10 verses 9 and 10. If you believe in your heart that Jesus died for your sins, and you're willing to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, he promises you will be saved. Why not do that today? He did the work. He died for your sins. You don't have to feel guilty longer. You don't have to be a good boy longer. You don't have to read more Bible verses, attend more church services. You need to place your faith and your trust in Jesus. If you want to do that right now, that's our first response. I'm going to give you an opportunity to we just pray this prayer with me? I'm going to acknowledge sin before God and ask Jesus to be Savior. And if you want to ask Jesus to be your Savior, you can pray this. You can pray it out loud in your seat right now. People around you would rejoice hearing you pray this prayer. Even if you're in Theater 14, even if you're at home watching this, just pray this prayer with me. Father, I acknowledge my sin before you and acknowledge that I need your son Jesus to be my Savior. And so I believe in my heart that Jesus died for my sins. Just pray that. I acknowledge my sin and I believe that Jesus died for my sins. And I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And today I ask Jesus to be my Savior. If you just prayed that prayer, God promises you, if you believe that in your heart, acknowledge your sin, and you're calling upon Jesus to be your Lord, and He promises you will be saved. And so there's three responses today, though. The second response is... Pray for your enemy. We can't talk about praying for enemies. We're such hypocrites. If we talk about them, we don't do it. And some of you in here, you need to be praying for your enemy. If you're not already praying for your enemy, I'll just give you some moments. Even right now, you begin to pray for your enemy. If you thought of that name, hopefully you thought of that name. Pray for their forgiveness. Maybe in this situation with you, maybe in other situations, maybe in their forgiveness before God because they're not believers. Pray for their salvation. Pray that God changes them. Pray that God will change you and use them. Pray as the Lord leads you, but pray for your enemy. Third response for hopefully one person here is maybe make a commitment to tangibly take steps to reconcile a relationship. Maybe you need to get up and leave right now. Go on, go and call them, talk to them, drive to their house, whatever you need to do. But reconcile a relationship. Some of you are in a difficult situation, maybe, where it's impossible to do that. For whatever scenario, I couldn't even dream up. But like I told you, we're not talking about dead people, deceased people. That opportunity was missed. But maybe that's a heavy burden on you. Maybe that's hard. God promises you cast your burdens upon him. He cares for you. He will take that burden from you. You miss that opportunity. But you know what? God gives new mercies every day. And his grace is sufficient. His grace in your weakness will make him known. And so you just confess, hey, I blew it on that one. And he'll give you more opportunities. You're still here. You're still alive. You're still walking and you're still breathing. He still has a plan for you. So, Father, I just continue to pray with my friends who are praying for their enemies and those who are praying for guidance, that we would not just be hearers of your word, but we'd be doers. And I pray you'd give us tangible steps that you practically would speak into our lives what you want us to do: acts of generosity, acts of service, acts of kindness, acts of love towards those who have hatred towards us, anger towards us. Help us to live out a supernatural love not just natural not just loving those who love us we should do that but not just loving the things that are desirable we should do that but loving those who are undesirable to us those that we naturally have hate for will you give us a supernatural love we need you to do the work we need you to do the heart search we need you to do the transformation please renew our minds and change our thinking this is you change the thinking of those who heard this false teaching in the bible that jesus was confronting will you change our thinking the false teachings we believe the things that are taught just by our religious leaders or just by our culture or maybe we've made them up in our own minds. Will you transform us by your word? Your word is true. Sanctify us by your truth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Southbridge, um, lots of stuff happening, uh, as you know, in this church. I hope that you'll leave and they will take tangible steps, not just maybe even a conversation, not just go to lunch and talk about football season coming up or whatever. As exciting as that is, I'm a football fan but take tangible steps as a result of what we know from the word we're more accountable now and so we're praying for you this week if you trust Christ as your savior will you please mark that on your connection card before you leave I want to give you some information about growing in that relationship we're going to send you as a church a bible and if you want to be baptized we're going to be doing that next week we'll so you can sign up for that as well we love you and we'll see you here next week